0: Welcome to episode 139 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm riding with me today are the three sages sa- of Linux, or is that the three stooges? Noah, Michael, and Zeb. <laughs> what
1: are you calling a stooge, buddy?
0: <laughs> now, this is a very special episode of Destination Linux as it is being streamed live on YouTube. So we're very excited to share this episode with all of you as well as a very special announcement. However, if you thought for one second that you could just tune in, get the message and leave, you're wrong. We are going to drag this out for (laughs) as long as possible. Now, we won't drag it out too long, but we do But at least
1: on 12 hours of the show,
0: at least 12 hours of the normal show. And if you're a patron, you've joined us behind the scenes, you know that Noah's not lying, that you get these shows that are an hour and a half to two hours every week. But patrons know that the show usually takes four and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, eight, 12 hours to actually get those two hours of content.
1: Sometimes if Michael's without his main machine and he has to do it with just Team Michael for 24 hours straight. Yeah, exactly.
0: So before we get into the announcement, let's find out what everybody's been up to this week. Zeb, my friend, how do you like Arch? Because I know you're just you're going to switch to Arch,
2: right? Well, it's funny you should say that because I'm actually on Manjaro for this episode. No, nice. um, I put the new eighteen point one or oh one or whatever the version is uh, running F- Xfce and it's very nice too. But but this week, um, my Gentoo saga has continued, and I think I'm turning into a bit of a, a Gentoo geek now. Um, So as I mentioned last week, one of the Gen 2 devs reached out to me and told me to update my system as Lutris has now been fixed. And lo and behold, it was, and it works. But what was was interesting was I said in my email to Zeb that NVIDIA has been awesome in various ways. Let me just repeat that for Ryan. This is a Gen 2 dev (laughs) saying that NVIDIA has been awesome in various ways. This is Uh one of them hotfix is based on a long shot idea that I had for a possible cause based on the kernel development experience. They took my idea seriously, wrote a hotfix, and as of today, have gotten back confirming that it works. So that just goes to show, Ryan, that NVIDIA is not all bad.
0: I never said they were all bad. They just need to open source their drivers. That's all. And we'd be all friends. But no, on a serious note, I think that's awesome. We had news a couple weeks ago about NVIDIA actually open sourcing certain portions of their their drivers. And it's not everything we wanted, but it's a start. And they're doing documentation, which is also good, which is not everything we wanted, but it's a good start. It's a good start. And you got to give credit where credit's due. So, hey, if NVIDIA turns this corner and starts, you know, really supporting open source in the right way, and supporting the devs out there, then, you know, all this team green color I got everywhere will make a lot more sense, won't it? <laughs> so thank you for that, Zeb. And Noah, what have you been getting yourself into, sir? I
1: did something kind of cool this week. I purchased, do you remember the old style Apple? Uh, I don't even think they were called iBooks back then.
0: You got an iPhone? The, the, the,
1: no. <laughs> the uh, the little clamshell style colored uh, laptops that Apple was made, maybe they were called an iBook, I don't remember, but anyway, I bought one of those and I was like, I wonder if I could put Linux on it. Well, turns out you can retrofit an SSD into them, which is the first cool thing because it makes it way faster. But then the other thing is, it turns out it runs uh DSL just fine, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I wonder if there's something else that I could use. Turns out it runs Crutchbang or whatever they're calling Crutchbang nowadays. Uh, but yeah, it, it runs it runs Linux, and you can use it for some basic basic stuff. You can browse the internet, you can uh, do some light text editing, and some you know photo organization and stuff like that. And so, if you're organizing files and just kind of you want to get some looks in a coffee shop, take a 24 year old or 25 year old uh, you know peach orangish laptop that. Looks like it's straight out of the nineties because it, you know, is straight out of the nineties and connected to a to a, a coffee a Wi-Fi and and goof around on it. It's, I uh, love
0: that because it's you, literally, cool. you literally made all the hipsters jealous because you went more hipster than them by bringing the old school MacBook in there. Like <laughs> you, yeah. hipstered everybody.
1: So here, here's here, here's where this uh, motivation came from. It's kind of work in progress. Eventually, I would like to get to a place where. Uh, I could use it as a a daily driver. And and so the thing that I like about that particular style of computer is the cases are massive. Like there's so much space. I mean, I could fit Three uh, modern ultrabooks inside of the case for one of these little tiny uh, whatever they're called iBook clamshells I think um, and and so I, I started looking at it and it turns out there's all sorts of mods that you can do to put you know various different you know upgrades and, and various kinds of things and what I want to do at some point is get like a Raspberry Pi or something like that and mount it in there the two the the keyboard is difficult but it's it's work aroundable the brick wall that I'm at that if anybody in the community can help me with I would appreciate is the display? Uh, the display is a very—it has a very specific kind of ribbon connector and a very specific kind of ribbon cable. And from my understanding, the video signal is—it was was specialized to that particular motherboard. It's not like a standard VGA or HDMI signal. So you can't just cut the things off and solder new pins on. So if anybody knows how to do the display, that's the thing I, I can't quite figure out yet. And then I'll have to worry about the trackpad too. But I, that that looks like uh, that's the, the display looks like that's be harder part so yeah it's gonna be kind of a fun thing to play with very cool
0: and michael what have you been up to sir
3: so i've been doing for the past couple of weeks i've been working on the announcement that we're getting ready to talk about and uh i can't wait to let you know uh, but i've also been doing some other things about getting my uh, arch set up as exactly how i want it i still am working on that because there's uh, quite a few things that you have to do um, but overall, uh, I'm, I'm just—I've been putting a lot of effort into the coming announcement, and it's—you know—hard to explain in detail until we get to that. So once we get there, I'll be able yeah, to let you know. Yeah, have got to
0: drag this on, right? We got. You. Yeah,
3: exactly. We're gonna—we're—we're just—it's just—it's not you dragging it on. It's—it's—it's—it's—you know—making the, the the, the suspense increased and improving it, <laughs> wetting your appetite for the information.
2: So Ryan, what have you been up to? So
0: I had the most amazing time yesterday. You guys know that uh, we had to find a new venue for my local coffee and Linux in North Georgia event. And we found a new venue, which was a awesome coffee house that was open to hosting us for very little cost at all, like $10 for the whole two hours, rent a room and have this because we're a nonprofit, obviously. And I didn't know how many people were going to show up because we were moving locations. It was kind of a little bit of a mess. But we had a really good show up. We filled up the whole room with folks and we talked Linux. We had some new people show up. Uh, We had great discussions. But there was this moment of realization. I brought my Mycroft device there too that I built from a Raspberry Pi to kind of show Mycroft. And, um, you know, people were kind of like, oh, that's cool, you know, but it wasn't as good. Mycroft is good, but it's not as good as you kind of hope it could be or as useful as you hope it could be. But the coolest thing to me was when Bo was there because. <clears throat> it had nothing to do with the cool thing that he's a, a hacker and a pen tester and has all of these amazing stories about facing off with the NSA and all of these things. It was the moment that he gets a cup of coffee poured and he needs to mix the creamer into the cup of coffee. So he pulls a switchblade out of his pocket, opens it and stirs the coffee with it. And at that moment, I thought, I will never be as cool as Bo because the <laughs> whole the stops, and is just staring at this dude. Casually stirring his coffee with a switchblade. And then he wipes, you know, the switchblade off and puts it back into his jeans and just, you know. As long
1: as he didn't knock his alcohol over with his gun while he was doing it, I don't see a problem.
0: <laughs> He's just a cool dude. But no, I, I had the best time. We shared lots of stories and fun. And we also had uh, someone, Brian from the event, say, Hey, my office is right down the street and you're going to need a lot more space because this thing's growing. And we can hold, you know, 30 plus people. So let's start having the event at my office. So now we kind of have a place where we can store stuff and have cool equipment that we can show off and do whatever we like. So we're going to try that next month. But overall, just really appreciate all the support from the community in Georgia for coming to the event. Some people traveling as far as Tennessee and other states to come to it. It's just really awesome to see that. So I had a ton of fun. So this episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Now, I love DigitalOcean. I love DigitalOcean well before they ever sponsored Destination Linux, and I will love them For as long as they are around, which hopefully is forever, because when I started with Linux, a lot of people have made the comment, which is very nice, even at the Lug, man, you've only been Linux for a few years and you've learned so much. You seem to know this whole gamut of info. And while that's not true, there's so much I still don't know. I honestly can tell you that one of the reasons why I learned so fast in Linux was because of DigitalOcean, because I could drop a droplet. Play with different servers, play with different commands. And when I messed something up, I would just redeploy a new server and start over again. It was so simple to use and it costs almost nothing. You can get all of this access to the world class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2000 cloud agnostic tutorials. That means even if you happen to use another server, maybe you're forced to for work or something, their tutorials still will work across any cloud out there. So you can stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. And you can get started with DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. Now it's really important you let them know that we sent you there. So use this link, do.co slash DL. We couldn't be doing this or the special announcement and things coming up without the support of DigitalOcean. So a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for their sponsorship of this show.
2: So on to a section that we really love um, on this show. It's the community feedback because you always come up with some good suggestions and good questions. So this week we've had an email from Brandon. Hi, guys. Love the show. I'm an avid listener. Missed Zeb while he was out, but your recent guest hosts and interviews have been awesome. And, and I totally agree. The guys that stepped in for me and the girls were absolutely brilliant. So he goes on to say, in your episode 135 of the show, you discussed Huawei creating their own open source OS. So my questions are, what is to prevent Huawei from taking the publicly owned or open source version and tweaking it by adding loopholes and backdoors before it gets installed on their phones or devices? Is there a simple way to detect changes to the truly open source versions after it is baked into a phone or other device by a vendor? Isn't trust in the software or hardware distributor still required whether the product is based on an open source or proprietary implementation? I'd love to know your thoughts. Keep up the great work, Brandon. So it seems that this sort of question comes about every time anything is involving a Chinese company. Um, and is that fair? Do we have any evidence of this? Now, Ryan, I know you're heavily into the the phone side of it, and I'm sure that Noah can tell us about the hardware side, and then Michael's probably dug into all sorts of um, bits and pieces about <laughs> Huawei. So how do you guys in the phone industry see, see Huawei and their product line?
0: Um, that's an interesting question. So Huawei produces a lot of equipment that is used out there in telecommunications outside of just phone hardware. A lot of 5G technology uh, is from Huawei. So there's a lot of companies out there that you probably don't hear commenting on this press who have Huawei equipment out there in the telecom industry. But going back to Brandon's question specifically, you know, there really is... Nothing preventing a company from saying one thing and doing the other, right? They could go, they could, what do they call it, Michael? Washing open source? Open washing, yeah. Open washing, you know, where they kind of say things are open source, but they really never go fully open yeah. source. Or they'll there's, use there's, there's... the open
3: core term and then just kind of like take them the word open and trying to make it re- mean completely different things.
0: So to me, it, you know, regardless of what the company's name here is, insert any company name here. And my question will or my answer will be the same is we have to wait till they actually do it, right? We have an OS that is open source that people can go out and look at the code and see what it's all about first. And then we have to kind of sit and watch and see how they treat the open source community because it could be one of two things. One is they're just different to find an alternative until they can jump right back onto Android if the laws change and things like that. Or the other is that they kind of see this as a true viable option way forward to create a competitor to iOS, to create a competitor to Android, and they could build something truly awesome here. And if every company can get involved and help with it, well, that thing could really turn pretty awesome. Uh, With that said, I think there's more while, while the news from Huawei is good and they obviously have tons of money, billions of dollars to throw at open source and to create something here. I think we have a lot of cool alternatives out there right now in the open source community. You know, you've got the work being done on ports. You, of course, have Sailfish OS that Noah is a huge fan of. You have uh, the Pine64 phone out there. We've got so many great alternatives out there that I'm not going to hold my breath that Huawei is going to do anything fantastic, but certainly they have the pockets, too. They have the ability and the connections, to. And there's a lot more Huawei equipment in use than people probably realize whether you have one of their phones or not.
3: I'd also say, as far as like it goes with the um, like the open sourcing of it, it, you're gonna have to trust any company that you just take the device and not change anything. Like that's kind of the, the case, in just in general, because they could be changing stuff on the hardware side or the software side, and so they could open source the software, but the hardware has special things that don't make it actually compatible with the, the open source OS. Uh, so there's things that could be, could be done, uh, but there are cases where um, when we had Dalton on, the, on our previous episode, he was guest hosting, he mentioned how that if a phone was to be – the open source operating system was released, if you can't take the phone, wipe out the OS – and then take your own build of the uh, the OS that they provide the source for. Then there's something in amiss in that situation. So that would be a one way to test to see if it's if it's uh, like genuine structure. To like if you can build that OS back up and see if you get everything back to where it's supposed to be. So that's one way to do it. But in some there is going to be some level of trust involved, you know, just in general because there's there's. There's no way for us to, you know, take like take a look at every piece, even the hardware pa- pieces, even the phones that are open phones, or right. as, as open as possible. There's things that can't be open in those phones. So,
0: so Noah, along this line, you've been using Sailfish OS now for a few weeks. Any thoughts on this?
1: I think we're focusing on the wrong thing. It it, it, it goes back to this idea of being a real geek, right? When I was a kid, I would go into Radio Shack or I would go into Hobby Lobby or whatever the hobby store was at the time and I would purchase resistors and I would purchase capacitors and batteries and, and and 555 circuits and stuff like that. And I would take it home and I would build something, right? And when I watch my kids go into a Best Buy or a GameStop or whatever, they don't build anything. They don't build squat. They come, they They go looking for products of what can a company deliver to me? Not what problems do I have and not what things do I want to do in life. And so what how can I use technology to solve problems and improve my life? They don't think about that. They just go, they just wander around blindly. Uh, I wonder what uh, I could do with this stuff. And that's the way people, and that, that's how I see other people, adults even, that wander around electronic stores, right? What's Apple, like, you go on social media, you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, right? All of these people that are so excited about the Apple event, they could care less. They don't go in and say, I really hope Apple adds this because this would fix something. They just show up and just wait to find out what they're going to be given it's like they're subjected to these companies and it's very frustrating how many notches
3: are we going to get this time
1: Right, exactly. That kind of stuff. So when we start talking about when we start talking about cell phones, I look at cell phones very differently than the vast majority of people look at cell phones. Now, I acknowledge it's not a market reality, so this is not something that, I'm not going to change the way that the cell phone industry works, but I didn't buy this thing because of what it could do for me. I didn't buy this thing because some company said, hey, we produce this operating system that has these features and you're going to love this. I went the other way. I said, I want to buy a device that I can install whatever the heck I want to install on it and get guess what? Sony makes the Xperia open devices line. And so I can install anything that can run on an ARM processor can run on this phone. Anybody can design an operating system for this phone. Ubiports can design an operating system for this phone. Sailfish OS can design an operating system for this phone. If Copperhead OS hadn't gone under, they could design an operating system for this phone. And guess what? They're going to get the exact same support from Sony on this device that Google got from whatever company they contracted to make this device, right? That's to, To me, that is the perfect hardware phone. And then once we've identified the perfect hardware phone, we go to distro hopping, right? I'm going to go download some images. I'm going to install them until I find one I like. And I landed on Sailfish OS. If you didn't land on Sailfish OS, if you landed on uh, what, Lineage, th- that's fine. Whatever. Whatever operating system you want to run on your phone. The point is, and this is kind of where I think I take a slightly different approach than, than the discussion we've been having, is I just want you to make that decision. I don't want you, I don't want to wait for Huawei to decide to make an op- open source operating system or not. I want Huawei to make a really good phone and they're not invested in what operating system you run on that phone. And then on top of that, if they want to ship it with an open source operating system and it happens to work really great, I think that's awesome. But if, even if they don't, if they made a device that was, and Huawei is pretty decent about this from my understanding. If you look at any of the alternative ROMs that come out, technic- most of them run on Huawei phones. Um, as long as they're making phones that adhere to some sort of sane standard that other people can build operating systems that's how we arrive at a linux-like ecosystem on the phone
3: so up next to the community feedback is chris and he writes hi guys ever as always thank you so much for doing what you do i look forward to the show every week uh, to business i must res- respectfully suggest that michael be May be tilting at windmills with regard to his criticism of Canonical for keeping their Snap Store closed source. As near as I can tell, the only thing Ubuntu has kept proprietary are the website and binaries around the actual Snap Store. Uh, not accurate. That is the infrastructure that is presents the uh, presents the directory of snaps to the end users and also the stores the binary the, the binaries for download. Why does this matter even a little bit? From what I understand, all the tools to create the snaps are fully FLOSS. The configuration files for the creation of each snap are checked into source control. So, if something awful happened to Canonical closes its doors tomorrow, what would that mean? Someone else would need to stand up a new Snap Store. We'd need to re-upload all the snaps, and it'd be business as usual. Am I right? If not, yep. what am I missing? And that's just my two cents. Thanks for everything you do, guys.
1: Before you say any, before you before you address any of that, can we just point out that this all we'd have to do is stand up a new Snap Store and re-upload all of the snaps, all you'd have to, like, that is a a massive, massive problem. Like, you'd have to get everybody's machine to point to a new snap store, and we would have to have some, you know, we'd have to go collect all of these snaps and upload. So, let's just start with the fact that that's a massive, massive problem in and of itself, be that as it may. What are some of the other inaccuracies with that, Michael?
0: Well, before Michael begins, (laughs) again, (laughs) what I want to point out again is that you guys are not allowed to write in and troll Michael. That is our job. We troll Michael. <laughs> not that's not trolling guy. anyway. That's just having a different. Agree- oh, oh, okay. Never yeah, mind. That's Go just ahead.
3: having a different opinion. that's but okay. right. or just oh, asking okay. a question. Really, um, but right, you're allowed to do that. I guess. Yeah, you could do that. That's fine. Uh, so this the issue is that the Snap Store is by being proprietary. The store itself. It means that one, we have to find all the uh, to get all the snaps and relocate them. We'd have to actually write a new snap store because standing up a snap a new store sound is not that doesn't sound that bad. But when you have to write everything from scratch to do so, it is a lot of work. And you have
1: none of the source code to it. Yeah, and you it, have no right? code. You don't to do even it. Know, You don't even know what the process is.
3: Yeah. So <clears throat> we also so we have that kind of issue, but we also have. The situation where the snap the snapcraft tool integrates with Launchpad in many ways, and it also has integration with GitHub. So we have the ability to make the snaps. We'd have no way to facilitate the usage of them, as well as the snapd uh, daemon that runs the snap structure is dependent on the snap store code that they have so in in, in some in, in ways, I'm pretty sure you can't even replace the snap store even if you want to now. You can install snaps independently from the store, but I don't think you can actually install like to replace the repo that the store used. So even if you did write a snap store, you wouldn't be able to replace it without completely wiping out the existing store. You wouldn't be able to have that store and a new store like that's one of the complaints in the beginning. That uh, flat pack people had with the snaps, because with the flat packs you can have as many repos as you want, whereas right. the snap store is just a single repo. Now I think that a, sen- a central repo is a fundamental important piece to a, pr- a project like Universal Formats. However, I don't think that the store necessarily being closed is a good thing. I think that if if the store was open, there would be no real complaint that's you know it'd be like cosmetic complaints like for example people don't want to like load in their, their their look at their mounted drives and see a bunch of loop drives in their in their system when they run a command
0: I like mean, people always find something to complain about but there wouldn't be there wouldn't be anything legitimate really right left. it
3: would all be just cosmetic and also the themes don't work that great in snap sometimes depending on the application so there there are some issues with snaps in general that are not that important but they are completely you know, dismissed in the sense of like how, because it's, it's, it's a closed source store that actually is a big problem in some ways, because I'm not saying canonical is doing anything wrong with doing it or that they would do anything wrong because of it. But I am saying that at some point there is a possibility that canonical could be having a new CEO or a new, uh, they have like board of directors when they go public, that could happen. There could be some scenario where the, the worst of the worst thing could happen. I'm not saying it's likely. It's definitely probably not, not likely at all, but it's possible. And that's the entire point. If it was open source, it wouldn't even be possible.
1: Well, so just to uh, just to throw a little shade on on what you're saying too, Michael, um, have they not said that they want to move towards a uh, going public? And if they moved towards going public, would they not be controlled by a board? And if they were controlled by a board, does the possibility not exist that Hey, right. somebody's going to like a Microsoft's going to buy in and say, hey, you know what? This is uh this is a major asset, the Snapstar thing, because everybody gets their software from it. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and lock her up.
3: That's that's basically what I'm saying is like uh, I didn't, probably didn't say it. Well, I don't,
1: know that, I don't know if that's so far from likely.
3: Yeah, well, I think I'm that's just saying plan, I, part think of it. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, it's definitely possible. And I think and, and, and they are going public. That is the thing that they're going to do, whether the result of that is negative or not, that's up in the air. If the if the store was open source, there wouldn't be that much of an issue if they even if they did go public and got new board of directors and stuff. So that it's just it's an issue that doesn't need to exist and I don't understand why it does exist because Canonical is a company that typically does open source software. Like everything other than the store is open. So why is this one piece not when it's not like people would replace the store anyway because there's no value in doing that There's a central repo is important to us a universal store but the the possibility of the closed source backfiring on us there that is a thing that could happen and if for some reason the flat packs go away and app images go away and snaps are the only thing and then the board of director comes in and completely locks everything down that would be a bad situation to be in because yes they could lock down uh, they could say you know Yes, the Snapcraft tool is open and everything, but they could lock that down in the future so future versions wouldn't be open. We don't know. It's just a possibility mm-hmm. that doesn't. I don't see a value in it being closed, and I see many, many reasons to have it open.
0: So. so Jacob in our chat, Michael says, since snaps are not dependent on the distro, each distro could have their own store and they could all be enabled at the same time. Canonical keeps saying that the snap should be managed by the developer and not Canonical, so installing a snap made by Red Hat should be pulled from the Red Hat repo.
3: Well, I agree that they do say that the developer should be controlling it and they do technically. Uh, Canonical allows the developer to control the delivery, the the updates and all that stuff. The distribution of such is controlled by Canonical. And I don't think mm-hmm. that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that if a central repo is good because it makes it easier for people to know where these things are. And having yes. it's in this having yep. a scattered universal format re- remo- removes the benefit of even being a universal format. Like not completely, but in many ways it does. So if you go if you go to one store and you everything that you want is in that store, that's the best approach. That's also why Flatpak started the FlatHub because originally the Flatpak didn't have it and it was really confusing to find anything. So they created a FlatHub that's a central repo to get everything. That's the best approach, and that's and they they do offer the developers to have control, and I do think the developers should have control, not like repo maintainers having control. But I don't necessarily think that the repos, there should be also additional repos. There should be the ability to add additional repos if you want to, like an enterprise company wanting to deploy internal stuff. But I don't think that you know every distro should have their own repo just because that creates complications for no reason.
0: So interesting question. Generally, these things don't always have the easiest answers, but um, there you go. I think it's just something that they should get done. And I think it's a simple matter that could relieve a lot of, you know, Valid issues out there with snaps.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, although we've done two emails this week, uh, we do want to continue to try something different. So, if you've got some feedback that you can send in via a little video snippet, um, that would be really good. Um, so, send us a video comment showing us your tech favorite desktop comment or suggestion, and we may feature it in a future episode. And don't forget that we're still We still haven't had 10 videos shown, so there's still a chance to get some stickers and swag. So send your video links and or emails and comments to comments at destinationlinux.org.
0: So before we get on to the rest of the show, we want to take this time to talk to you about the very exciting changes that are happening for Destination Linux. That's why we decided to go live and stream this for everybody so everyone can take part of this because none of this would have been possible without all of you from the community. So, Destination Linux has had some very humble beginnings. You know, we were very excited when we started. It was just conversation between two guys. When I joined me and Rocco just sitting there talking about Linux laughing so much we'd constantly get emails saying hey would you guys cut out the giggling and other than that your show's okay Um, but we just had a good time and so we never expected this thing to grow into what it is today. Over the years since the show has changed Noah's joined Michael's joined Zeb of course went from producer to being a part of the show it just exploded and nothing could show that more than when we needed to raise funds to bring Zeb to America and the whole community came together to make sure that happened. And that was the first time we ever got to see Zeb. And since that time, it's just continued to flourish tens of thousands of downloads, 107 countries. I mean, it's just blown up and we could not have done that without you.
2: And what's important with that is that we, that as we grow, we find new ways of giving back to the community. Um, and using our reach responsibly so we want to help accelerate and promote the growth of open source and linux and to do that we're going to ask our incredible community that is behind destination linux along with others that share our core values and we're going to be bringing you new content new ideas new values
3: and that is why we are launching the destination linux network our mission with the DLN is to bring the best of the community together and provide a welcoming, inclusive, and in place for everyone to use, learn, and enjoy Linux and open source. So with these core values and stuff we've mentioned, uh, we, we're, it is important for us to take the next step in establishing Destination Linux as a company and legal entity. And this is this will allow us to create the partnerships and build a network that will help us take Destination Linux to the next level and many, many levels to come as well.
1: The, uh, so the idea is this, right? What does it mean to you as the listener? What are you going to get as the audience? What you have to understand is how all of us came together, right? Each one of us, we're all capable of making content on the internet, and we're all pretty good at it. If 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 I'm being honest, um, but the problem is discoverability, getting eyeballs on your content, right? I host the Ask Noah show. I answer questions every single week. And I think that information is valuable to anybody getting started with Linux or even somebody that's been doing Linux for a long time. If you want to stay up to date with Linux news, there is nobody doing a better job than Michael and this week in Linux. And he he does that every single week. And if you understand Michael or if you know him, you know what a huge challenge that is for him to show up and do something every single week. And he does it for you because he cares about the community. And, and Ryan has such great in-depth and knowledge and insight into gaming news and stuff stuff. stuff like that and hardware and and those kinds of things. And so he's able to do all of those things. The problem is there's no one central place that you can come to and say, I need a directory listing of if I want hardware stuff, I go here. If I need questions answered, I go there. If I need absolutely world-class news coverage, I go here. If you, you need a central directory listing of that, the problem is every other model and every other organization that tries to do this, they try to suck up the content, right? And they try to own that content and they try and take it away from the creator. And what happens is creators get burnt out and they say, no, listen, I have my own ideas of how I want to present this content. And the truth is nobody does news better than Michael because he spends all his time thinking about how to present news each week. And nobody does hardware better than Ryan because he spends all week and every day and every night thinking about how to present hardware stuff and trying it and buying ridiculous amounts of it and then sending it to Michael and I when he's done with it six days after <laughs> it's outdated. And uh, and, th- and then there's me and I, I sit there and I play with stuff and I troubleshoot things and I charge people ridiculous amounts of money. And then I take all that information, I give it away on a show each week. And so that directory listing, that ability to come together and do something collaboratively without giving up ownership, is is an awesome thing. And that's something that we really believe strongly. And so, like Michael said, forming a legal entity around it so that we can handle things like finance and we can have some budgetary stuff and, and we can fund some of these things. That's why we're super excited to announce not necessarily a, a we're, we're all coming together and, and it's all going to be one network, but a partnership inside of a network where you, the listener, can get a, a directory listing and an idea of where you would like to see content. And when other people inside of the network do things that are tangentially related, we can come together and say, Hey, you know what? Michael did this thing on the news. I'll bring him on to Ask No and we'll talk about it. Or Ryan covered this thing on a hardware thing. I'll bring him on to Ask No and talk about it. Or I answered some question that is particularly beneficial to uh Michael Show or Orion Show or maybe even Destination Linux and so they can bring me on to talk about it and that partnership I think is what's going to make this really exciting and strong.
3: Yeah, it's basically the idea of taking open source and applying it to the network. Exactly. So- so Open source have,
1: podcasting, you might even say. Yeah, exactly.
3: So uh, so we're going to start with a variety of different things. So first of all, we're going to start with some podcasts. And you've, of course, you're going to get the Destination Linux podcast as a part of this network. But you're also going to get the Ask Noah Show, This Weekend Linux, and Linux for Everyone with Jason Evangelo. We'll be Wait, can you in,
0: say that one more time? We uh, got, hold
1: on. Linux for did you say Linux everyone? For everyone. Jason Evangelo as yes, part I of did, the network?
3: I did, I did mention that. I Whoa. did mention that. Uh, in fact, we actually have a clip from Jason to uh,
4: cut to right now. Hello, Destination Linux family. My name is Jason Evangelo. You might know me from Forbes or from the Linux for Everyone podcast. And I just wanted to jump in here and say that I am thrilled to be part of the Destination Linux network right out of the gate, because I really believe that uh, what these guys are trying to accomplish is something that is seriously needed in the Linux community. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but there's not a lot that so tightly integrate the community into what they're doing and do it for the community, not just for their show, not just for you know, numbers and downloads and clicks, but to actually benefit the community and help the community and bring the community together. So congratulations, you guys, and um, I'm thrilled to be along for the ride. And believe me, there's a lot of exciting stuff down the road. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. So thanks, Jason, for that. And yeah, we're, we're excited to have
3: you a part of the network as well. And we also have other content that's coming in the works. So you can also you get video content for, as well as not just podcasts. We're also having uh, YouTube channels are going to be a part of it, including Dos Geek, Zebedee Boss Channel, and dux Digital. And we're going to be doing live streams more with the community and a variety of different things. Also, the DLN is going to provide a hub for all of us to chat, network, and share the journey of their usage of Linux with, and open source with each other. And through this interactive tools, we're going to actually be launching a discourse forum. So the forum will be a part of the website. We, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but also uh, we'll get to that in a second anyway. And also there's a, something that I want, we, we want to do in the forums to kind of integrate everything about the network. So it's not just a forum, it's also an integration with all the different uh, po- every time a new episode comes out of every podcast, we're going to have a thread about that. There's going to be just a lot of integration with the forum. It's going to be a centralized hub for the entire network. So definitely if you are interested in what we're doing with the network, you would, should you definitely need to try to join the, the the forum and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And we've actually spoken about something, you know, for many times about how Linux and marketing, it has its issues, right? We discuss this all the time. There's no re need to rehash the specifics, really. But we receive feedback telling us, you know, if, you're, if marketing is so important, why don't you just do it yourselves? So challenge accepted.
0: There you go. So bringing these communities together into the discourse forums and we have tons of new content on the way, exciting content from people you are absolutely going to love that we're working on within the network network but you're going to have all these communities in one place on Discourse. We've announced we're looking for something else as well. We want to give back as a part of this network to make it something entirely different. We've announced we're looking for the community to pick the very first charity on the Discourse Forum. So once you join the Discourse Forums, and we're about to give the URL for you guys to hit it and probably crash the site here in a minute. But once we (laughs) give that out, one of the first things I think you should do is check out all the awesome shows and content and people part of the network but also look, go to this charity section and suggest the first charities that we should pick. And we're going to rotate this on a constant basis. Um, We're looking for charities to work on things like privacy, security, the digital divide, and issues that are important to all of us. So giving back with this giant community and this giant network is going to be something that is a part of our mission, and we are going to definitely choose to accept it and not only bring marketing to the forefront with Linux, like other companies, unfortunately, outside of Linux, have done uh, better than us and uh, than Linux in some cases. We're going to work on that with the power of this network. And we're also going to work about being you know, good patrons of the community and finding ways that we can give back with all the support and love that you've given us over the years. So what you can do right now is you can check out the podcast, the video content, and all the creators or Destination Linux by network by visiting destinationlinux.network. That's destinationlinux.network, and be sure to join the DLO, DLN forum while you are there.
2: So we hope that you're as excited about the digit, um, Destination Linux network as we are. There's so much more that we're working on and excited to share with you in the coming weeks. But until then, as Ryan has just said, please check out the destinationlinux.network. Um, to get the latest news and see all the amazing content that we put together to help bring these incredible communities together.
0: So just before our announcement, Manjaro also had a big announcement this week. Manjaro, like Destination Linux, has decided to take the next step in its growth of its popularity and has transitioned Manjaro into a legal entity and business. In their announcement, they state in order to effectively engage in commercial agreements, form partnerships, and offer professional services A legal construct has been formed, Manjaro, GmbH, and co. This move means that Philip and and Bernard will be able to commit full-time to Manjaro, which I think that news alone from forming the network is probably at least the most exciting thing for me, to think about that talent having access full-time to making Manjaro even better than it is, which it's pretty darn good right now. This also means exploration of future commercial opportunities for the company. The team is also transferring ownership of all of its donations to a fiscal host, which will allow for transparency and allow for the team to approve donations for activities like sponsorships, local community costs, travel, hardware, and hosting costs. So Manjaro has continued to grow in popularity. It has, in my mind, you know, I love Arch. I know that's shocking for a lot of you to hear. But what I love about Manjaro is that it has made Arch approachable and is one of the distros that many people know as the approachable Arch. And it makes it easy for the masses to experience it, to try it out without having to go through the initial pains of the install process. Um, so Manjaro forming a business around Arch that can push the Linux desktop forward to me is a very welcome change. I am so excited about this for Manjaro and wish this, their team the very best on this new venture. And again, just having those two full-time amongst other developers that they could potentially bring on full-time developing manjaro i think huge things are in the works for that distribution
2: mhm i think f- for me the exciting thing is maybe businesses outside of our little niche group will now see hey there's this thing called manjaro they started off as a uh, as a, like a hobbyist distro maybe guys passionate about what they were doing and in just a short space of time cuz how long have they been going since about 2011 something like that So, you know, in a very short space of time, they've gone from a community driven distro to a business entity. So is that going to start showing other companies out there? Hey, maybe this Linux thing is worthwhile and we might start getting Linux laptops in Best Buys and other type of outlets.
0: Well, it's really important from a commercial business standpoint for them to have we've. We've come across this with Destination Linux. I mean, people want to do business with another business. They don't want to sign a contract with a bunch of individuals and then find out later, oh, those individuals just got busy and decided to stop doing that thing that we're paying them to do and deal with court fees and all that type of stuff of of trying to recover your money back. People want to do business with another business. There's some responsibility there. Um, There's some foundation that they can rely on when something is turned into an actual legal entity there. And so I think it's really important for Manjaro's growth that they take this next step. And we could see how that has helped companies like Canonical and others, you know, become kind of more of a foundation in Linux because they're actually a company. We've also seen how many distributions out there fold, right? The like, who would have thought Anterghost was going to go away? I would have never guessed it. I saw no signs leading to that happening. And thankfully, we got Endeavor. But again, I think having a foundation, having a business there that they're forming out of this and allowing the developers not to have to work, you know, one or two jobs on plus do this on the side is a huge advantage to being taken seriously and also help them create new partnerships with hardware, uh, with software vendors, with developers, all kinds of new opportunities open up because of this. So I, I, I'm really excited about it. So I think this is pretty cool that
3: Manjaro is doing this. I think there's a lot of potential and there's actually something I want to talk about in the sense that there's some people who have or are against the idea that Manjaro is doing this because it brings a business, uh, you know, a commercial approach to making a distro and there's some... Philosophies about how that's a negative to it, and I, I think that's. I mean, honestly, DC I think that
0: people also are not people who probably spend their nights, weekends, and holiday vacations supporting a distribution on the side while they work a full time job. Just a guess.
2: Probably mm. not. And have they looked at Have they looked at Canonical and Red Hat lately?
0: Well, yeah. The idea <laughs> is, I think the the bother, the it's
3: bothersome they have is is, is a company creating a distro versus a distro becoming a company and red hat was started as a company and then became made a distro and same thing with canonical so i think that's where that comes from but at the same time i think that it, it's if a company is like if they're able to turn turn it into a business and make it sustainable there's so much value in that like, Manjaro has been getting so much attention lately because of all, all the work they're doing for, like, support for gaming and that kind of thing. So th- that it shows that people are interested in it. And if they can sustain having people working full-time to, uh, you know, can just make it a better distribution for everyone. There is a lot of put in for that because they also make open source tools as well that they provide for everybody to use and, and other people have put those tools in other distros. So there's a lot of value in that they're, what they're doing and even if someone has a problem with it becoming a commercial, I think that they would have a problem if, if you tried to do any... I think they'd have a problem with the network if we, we created one, you know? like well, I it's, think it would
0: be a great time for people to look back at episode 37 where we did an in-depth... Uh, interview with Philip and uh, Bernard of Manjaro. Take a look at that. And uh, I think you'll get some fascinating insight back then before this was a concept and think about now how far they've grown. It's pretty awesome to see. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
2: And and if you're worried about the community no longer having a reach, um, you can bet your buttons dollar that the, the, the company that has joined with Manjaro to form this new organization is sitting there looking at the community seeing how many donations are coming in from that community. And that helped them realize that, yes, this is going to be a driving force. So if people start to worry, our oh, decisions now are going to be company-driven, as soon as those donations start to dry up because people don't like the way it's going, that will have a, a hard impact on – because let's look back. They started to bring in this office suite. Everybody was up in arms, and they – change their views so i don't think just because they're a company i don't think the community will lose that power of persuasion if anything because they're now a business entity they have to be keep yeah they're going to have to be careful that they keep the money streams coming in because unless you're a rich billionaire like canonical's got you're not going to have somebody just chucking money at a, a company to keep it going because they love linux so Community, don't worry about it. You will still have the power to influence people. Absolutely.
3: So Firefox actually has announced something really interesting. In our previous episodes, we talked about uh, we had a community discussion we made in the case where you know everyone should be using and supporting Firefox. And in just in case you need some more reasons why, Mozilla has announced a new service that they're testing, the Firefox uh, private network. Basically, it's a proxy VPN. So now this service is currently in free beta, and it lets you use the public Wi-Fi more safely and securely. It may not remain free. We don't know for sure about that or not. And also the other caveat is that it's currently only available for testing in the U.S. So if you're in the U.S., you can test it. Uh, We don't know if it's going to remain free or not. But I think that this is the first sign of them creating a services thing, hopefully, Maybe it's just I'm optimistic, but I hope that that's what it is, the first time in are creating a, a suite of services, which would be okay if they're doing that. Uh, I totally am fine with it. Uh, they, do, they state that they do not collect any information about your browsing, uh, but do collect generic information about how you interact with the service and they provide uh, info on how you can that you can opt out from this as well. So you don't they don't collect on what you're doing, but they collect they can they to, to like get information about how you're utilizing like connections to the service and that kind of thing. However, you can opt out of that as well. So that's really cool. So essentially, if you sign up, uh, you, you can install an add-on, and very similar to like other extensions like Private Access and other VPNs that you just install the extension into your browser, and then you're good to go.
0: Yeah. To be clear here though, this is a proxy VPN. So what's mm -hmm. the difference? PIA, you can install on your machine and all of the traffic leaving your computer is going to go through a VPN. That's whether software is calling out to the cloud or anything you're doing that has a connection to the internet has that VPN. This is a proxy where basically only the traffic that's going through your browser in this case, because it's an add-on for just your browser, is gonna go through basically a VPN service. So Pia has a very similar option, right? You can just install the add-on extension and all of your traffic in just the browser will go through Pia. Um, In this case, this is what this Firefox private network is starting out as, is just that proxy option, but it's completely free. I've been playing with it throughout the week. It's very fast. I've had no issues. Of course, it's in testing, so there's not a ton of people on it. There's not a ton of traffic, but so far, it looks really good. Um, The data is encrypted and sent through a proxy service partner, Cloudflare. I have some, seen some people be upset about the use of Cloudflare. I'm not sure. I haven't really looked into that, but it seems like no matter who gets mentioned, people get yeah, upset. no matter what they pick, um, they're going to be upset. Um, but it's important to know, again, that this is just a proxy server. So I don't want people to think this fully replaces a full VPN on your machine yeah. yet anyways. But I am super happy they're working on services. And it's very similar to what Opera did.
1: To, to be clear, Ryan, it, when you say, I don't want people to think this fully p- replaces a VPN, it depends entirely on what you're doing. If your goal of a VPN is to obscure your traffic, and so when you go and Google something or browse something or sign into accounts, you don't want to track. It is a full replacement for a B- VPN, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're just if most of your traffic is going through there. However, if you start going and downloading, say torrents, torrents that's not sure. going or to-
1: checking your email in Thunderbird or exactly. whatever. But yeah. if, if if you're Ooh. doing, it, but here, I guess the reason I point that out, or the reason I think it's noteworthy, is this. When people ask me about VPN technology and they say, I need privacy, I always ask them what their needs are. And if they tell me, well, I just want to browse privately, I tell them to download Tor. And I say, hey, go check that out. To me, right. this is just Tor Lite. It's not mm-hmm. quite as advanced and privacy secure as Tor. But like Tor, it's just funneling through the Tor web browser. This is just doing Firefox.
2: There you go. But the, only thing, the only problem I've got with this is, is, is for me, it's a perfect statement here of of, of. of saying something but not making obvious what you're doing and they state they do not collect any information about your browsing but do clinic collect generic information about how you interact with the service what's the difference what what's the difference between watching where well, you're going or watching where you came from and how you got to where you're going to be going
0: i don't know what specifically because they didn't list out but i'm guessing because this isn't how most vpns tend to list it out is when you connected what time you connected where you connected from what username password you used when you connected those are generic services that most vpns collect what most people are concerned about however is what happens afterwards, the logging of where did you go, what website did you visit, then where did you go next. That's the piece that most people um, have a trust issue with VPNs, and rightfully so, because there are very few VPNs out there that actually have a proven history like Private Internet Access does of being taken the court and and you know being subpoenaed and saying look, uh, we don't have logs. You can sue us up, down, and sideways. We don't have logs, and we mm-hmm. don't. They tell
1: them come and come and come. Search the servers. Go ahead. Look.
2: Have at yeah. it. Whatever logs you yeah. find, you can have. We so don't I'm find any logs sort of, exactly. I'm guessing this sort of information would help Mozilla maybe do an advertising campaign because all of a sudden they've now got twenty thousand extra connections from in you know Guatemala. So let's go and deliberately i don't know mail shot or something or i'm guessing it's just to let them know how and where their service is being used rather than what you're using it for
0: yeah and the big key here is you can opt out anyway so even if you're one of those people like i don't even want that fine you can opt Mm. out that to me was the important part if they had left it where no matter what you're going to have to opt in it would have been a little bit like "Eh, just keep using pia um but this was a good option here
3: yeah, and I also think that the, the Cloudflare thing is uh, if all the services to use, Cloudflare is probably one of the most, you know, reasonable options. Because there's, like, if they if they were going to be, like, if they were, because Cloudflare started doing their own DNS thing. So, like, they have a really huge backbone of the infrastructure that you could utilize. And a lot of people do use Cloudflare. And I think there's just, like, a licensing thing that people have a problem with. I'm not really sure. I haven't gone to that, that depth yet. Uh, but cloudflare is one of the main dns providers these days now because they actually have the ip address of 1.1.1.1 and you can connect to that and use that for your your dns and you can that way you can avoid using google's dns public dns and avoid using your isp's dns um, so that's an option so i actually think that it's interesting that they did choose cloudflare and i don't really see the problem in it if you have if you know more about this particular topic on that part please feel leave a comment and let us know
0: Yeah. No, I'm curious. um, Do you, a lot of people talk about spinning up their own DNS servers. I've not played with this yet, although I should probably take a DigitalOcean droplet and do it. Is that something you do or do you use an existing one out there? No,
1: I think bind is pretty much a fad. I think it's going to go away at some point.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry.
1: Yes. No, I, uh, I yes, I, we have the, I mean, we have a, we have a company DNS server. I've got, I run a DNS server at my house and then I've got one that's on the internet. The point of that DNS server is simply this. Uh, we use it for things like redirects. So for example, when you go to, um, what would be a good example that I can give out publicly? When you go to Com, it is redirecting to a, a totally different server with a totally different URL and all of that stuff, and to make that happen, um, and and for the user if, to be totally transparent to the user, so they don't know that there's all these various different URLs that you know whatever it is, po- you know podcast slash podcast slash asno whatever that thing is, it just it it has a nice URL, and so we just we call that the director, and it basically uh, we put DNS entries in there for things. We also use it for things like clients if they have a site and they're given a static IP, we own the domain client or cloudclientaccess.com and so what we do is that 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 URL or that uh, domain exists to point to our DNS server and the director we add in the client's IP address and then put their business name as a as a A record in for that domain so if you had if you had it might be dosgeek.clientcloudaccess.com would direct your uh, IP address for your business and that way we can when we install it like, you know DVR systems you know security camera systems when we give people remote access to their VPN stuff we just tell them for the host put in your business com, and then it redirects and so for those kinds of things we have to run a DNS server. Gotcha. CentOS 8 is something that you should check out make sure to check that out at centos.org. Also Mumble got an update after nearly 10 years Mumble finally got a new Full release 1.3.0 this release contains over 3,000 commits compared to the prior version with 1,600 parent commits now some of the new highlights include new design themes with mumble light and dark themes I tell you what I cannot use applications unless I have dark themes available like I can run it in the back it totally screws up my productivity and that sounds like a first world problem it sounds like that way because it is that way it is a first world problem but I have to have a dark mode in order to be able to use the software efficiently they also have individual user volume adjustments, which is fantastic for those of us that do production because now we can have individual people joining the show and we can adjust their volume so that everything comes out very consistently without having thousands of dollars worth of equipment, which is what I had to do when we first started using things like Mumble. There's a new bindable shortcut key for changing transmission mode. So if you've ever used Mumble, you know, there's three ways that you can communicate. You can talk into your mic and have it pick up by voice, or you can uh, push on a button and have it activate that way. Like I said, three. And so this is going to allow you to have a shortcut to change between those two transmission modes. Uh, Dynamic children dynamic channel filtering to manage large communities. So if you have a mumble server that has 50 channels and you only use four of them, you can say, hey, just show me the four of them. Additionally, they're going to allow you to filter channels based on how many people are in the channel. So if you have... If you, yeah, right. So if you go into a mumble server, there's 50 channels, only three of them have people in them. It will just show those three. You can have it hide channels that don't have any available users in them, which makes a lot of sense. Multi-channel recording for synchronous, even after hours of recording. Uh, Optional clock in the overlay. I'm not sure why you would want that, but if you do, it's a thing that they have now. Improved user management for admins, as well as banning management and the ability to remove certain user avatars. Every mumble community that I'm in right now has a group on Telegram or Discord or Slack where they track who has to be banned and who has to be here and who needs a new cert and who because there's no tools for that. So Mumble is going to do that. The, the, the interesting thing about Mumble is this, right? Opus is the future of technology. And I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say two things. Opus and SIP are the future of IP voice technology. And so if it's not using Opus and SIP, chances are it's not going to be around in 10 years. And Mumble has been and continues to be one of the most reliable Opus. Uh, voice chat platforms out there And while Discord and other competitors have tried to, Im- to come up with more Impressive features and more impressive UIs and stuff like that, frankly they suck And Mumble has continued to hold its own For stability and also just pure raw functionality. The amount of times that I've seen somebody on, on Discord where something is not available or site didn't load or the, the server was down or whatever happens all the time. You just don't see that kind of thing with Murmur, which is the server component of Mumble. So it's great to see some really great enhancements that are coming from Mumble. One of the first programs that I install, something I use. Literally daily, uh, it's, that's absolutely awesome, and I'm glad to see that they're continuing to make uh, progress with it because it's a very, very useful tool on Linux.:
0: Actually, it's interesting because I started out in when my journey into Linux, I was using Discord because that's where all the people in Windows were, and sure. used Discord for gaming and all of that. So yeah. when I came over to Linux, I was happy Discord was still there, and it worked fine. And then someone uh, one of the servers, in fact, one of the first servers I dropped in DigitalOcean to kind of learn things was Mumble, because I heard people in the Linux community talking about Mumble. And I thought, oh, you know, looking at screenshots kind of looks dated a little bit and things like that. So I'll probably stick with Discord. And then as soon as I got a Mumble server up and running, I fell in love. I fell in love because... While it didn't have all the fancy GUI stuff going around, it worked all the time. It's right. never down. It never crashes. And it's a part of the patron perks for my channel is you get the access to the mumble server. And people use it all the time because it's so fast to get mm-hmm. connected, start gaming. It creates, it, ha- it uses so little data that when I'm live streaming gaming and things, which is using tons of data, it doesn't cause interruptions and stutter and problems, uh, transmitting the voice. It's just, I love Mumble, man. Yeah, it's yeah. also
3: it's low resources on the the system it, too. Like the Discord is using yeah. a lot more resources than Mumble does. Oh, sure, but the it's protocol. encoding everything
1: over a over a web browser. But the, the <laughs> or even if you, if you're not, then you're using a uh, while well, you're using a Chrome wrapper to encode everything into a web browser, right? Pretty much, yes. But, but also, you know, the, like
3: the, the protocol is really was impressive about Mumble is the, the the how how clear the audio sounds in Mumble, but how little data it uses is impressive.
1: That's opus that's that's opus right, the, right. The, and that's why I said, that's why I said the, the, the future of IP communication technology voice over IP is going to be opus I, I so I work in the broadcast industry, and one of the things that we have been doing for years is they are constantly reevaluating codecs right and so when I got into the broadcast industry, what I was told was you want to use AAC. Everything is encoded in AAC because it sounds better, it works better, all that stuff, right? And what you've seen is just in the last four or five years, basically since 2015 when I started Ask Noah show, um, what you've seen is a slow transition over to Opus and everything sounds better, everything works better. And like you said, Michael, it's a way more efficient codec. It's kind of like the difference between Flack and Wave, right? Both of them are considered lossless audio codecs, even though FLAC technically isn't, but they're, they're both considered lo- uh, lossless audio codecs but the FLAC file size is you know just a fraction of what an uncompressed PCM audio file is and the reason for that is because it's a much more efficient codec and Opus is that codec as well and so you're seeing Opus pop up and everything from when you see HD voice on on, uh, on on a lot of cell phone plans a lot of those are utilizing Opus you know, or they're using G722 um and and all of the new technology that involves with any of the WebRTC stuff, when you connect to a voice conference thing, or I I would not be surprised if uh, whatever this software, Zoom is using Opus under the backend too. All of those things are based off of Opus because it's such a reliable, efficient codec. And that started with software like Mumble. And you're right, Ryan, it doesn't look great. It, it, it has needed a refresh for a long time. But what you find is it, once you get past the horrific UI, yeah it functions
0: great. Never stops. Yep. It's perfect.
3: So what's weird about that is that the, the new version of Mumble's design looks way better. There's such a huge improvement. And I can't tell you how important it is that they got rid of those ridiculous lip icons. If you yes. if you haven't seen it, just <laughs> go search just go search DuckDuckGo or start page images and just look for Mumble UI and you'll see these weird lip icons and it's <laughs> Thankfully, they are gone now. Which is And Tyler
0: awesome. says, and this is another reason why of course Michael was gonna support Mumble, uh it's QT five, so it has high DPI support now as well. So that, that's too. that too.
3: That yeah. too. And uh, just so you know, uh, the Destination Linux Network is, We're not only are, we are fans of Mumble, we are actually working on setting up a Mumble server. It's not available yet, so we're not going to give out an address or anything, but it is coming soon. So as we said, things a lot of things are coming soon. We are actually having some more announcements in the future. One of those will be including Mumble.
2: Nice. So up next, we have some news about Raw Therapy. And no it's not that which the destination Linux hosts need after coping with michaels <laughs> scenes It's actually a cross platform raw image processing program um, and there's been a plethora of bug fixes and speed optimizations under the hood. so the program is available as an app image, so if you want to check it out, just head over to the site, download the program, and add execution execute permissions, and go so 5.7 includes features like film negative tool for easy developing of raw photographs of film negatives, support for reading rating tags from EXIF and XMP, um, and that those are actually shown in the file browser film strip. There are new raw format support or new raw formats support. I thought raw. Was raw so i'll I'll be interested to find out what these new formats of raw are and there's speed optimizations with the interfaces amongst lots of other bug fixes so we have a lot of people in the destination um, linux community who are um, photographers and some professional photographers uh, like one of our guest hosts wendy hill photography so i'll be interested to find out um, later on what they think so do any of you guys use these types of um, programs on your photographs that you take?
0: Ah uh, potentially when I put mm-hmm. my Canon expensive uh, camera in auto mode, it may do that. Who knows? because I never take it out of auto mode.
3: so <laughs> I have to, I have used these tools um, not well, like not definitely not a professional. so i have I have a little bit of experience with them, but I wouldn't say it's like that much experience. Um, so we actually did talk to Wendy on a previous episode. We'll have a link in the show notes for that episode. We talked to her about uh, RAW Therapy and Dark Table. And the, as far as the RAW format goes, I do know a little bit about that. RAW is like a type of format, but there's actually like many, many, like dozens of different types inside of that format. So RAW is like mm-hmm. just uh, the so concept it's like of It's, a, it's
2: like a, a standardization where there's no standard.
3: <laughs> well, it's a standardization that has multiple versions inside of it. Yes.
2: Also oh, open source. <laughs> exactly. So, so we'll take the raw format and then we'll and let's say we've got a dozen raw formats and then we'll create a standard and now we just end up with 13 raw formats. Yep. yep. I get the picture.
3: Absolutely. It's perfect. That sounds
2: a lot like open source actually.
1: It does a little <laughs> bit.
3: Yeah. So the LVFS or the Linux Vendor Firmware Service is actually getting a new vendor. So the LVFS plays a critical role in providing hardware support for vendors with the ability to upload vendor firmware updates via the F. WPUPD open source daemon or for whoop the <laughs> <laughs> the LVFS
0: how can you pronounce cuz that's perfect right? maybe
3: maybe uh, the LVFS has already secured support for most major vendors like Dell, Lenovo, Logitech, System76, HP, Intel, MSI, AMD and more. So now we can welcome Acer to that family. So Acer has been evaluating the services up to this point, but is finally uploading the firmware updates through the service. So if you're utilizing an Acer laptop, you may start to see some firmware updates options and uh, become available pretty soon. You've actually if you've enabled the the W the FWPD the service, if you use an, an Aspire a315 or A3315, you'll be able to get the, fir- the available today. It's already available right now. Uh, so as Linux grows, it's actually really cool because these more vendors are, do- are taking up the usage of using the LVFS, making it a lot easier to do something that people back in the day were incredibly scared to do, including myself, to update well, their o- firmware.
0: Yeah, not only were they scared to do it, but let's be honest, if you had a piece of equipment and you went onto a forum like a Logitech mouse and you... And you were having problems with it, and they said you need to update the firmware. Your option was to put Windows in the VM or boot to Windows to get that firmware update. So this is a major uh, improvement, in my opinion.
1: Respectfully, I think it goes even further than just that, right? Because it's not just a function of having to boot into Windows. Even if you had to run it as like a as like a binary program, like they had a download, you go to the site, you download, and you you know do all that stuff. The nice thing about these up, from what I understand, the FW update, the way it works is it actually rolls it into your package manager so once you have once the package manager is aware that you have that device or that thing it just automatically pulls the update down and applies it for that device am i right about that mm-hmm.
0: yeah i don't know if it automatically updates it but it certainly notifies you that that update is available it's and available the yeah they have certain tools like that will tell you in certain portions of the gui gui tools like system 76 for instance to tell you hey you have these updates if you want to apply them they're there for you to update. But yeah, this is this is absolutely fantastic and crucial to really the adoption of hardware vendors making Linux-only devices because it used to be you, were, you didn't really update firmware all that often. It also used to be you'd go buy a video game and you got mostly the complete video game. Well, nowadays things are different, right? Firmware gets updated a lot. When you buy a new video game, generally it gets 15, 16 updates before it's actually stable. Things have changed Things are weird now, but that's a thing, and this allows Linux to be uh, competitive in the market. And when you look at the brands that we have, and by the way, we only listed, you know, maybe the top six or seven that are recognizable, but it just goes on and on and on about the LVFS partnerships that they've made but all the major ones are covered there from dell lenovo logitech HP, intel msi system 76 amd all of them are there so that to me is critical that you have those major components there to get your firmware updates in a simple tool it's very easy to install you can go out onto a website get the instructions for it to get the daemon running so that as soon as an update's available boom you'll have it and you can decide if you want to apply it or not awesome
2: so just when you thought it couldn't get even more exciting than our announcement today, Pine 64 have dropped another surprise. We've got the Pinebook Pro. We've got the Pine phone. And now they're talking about the Pine smartwatch. So they haven't given us any um, hard and fast times yet, but what they've said is it will be around about $25. It will come with a nice charging dock. Um, There'll be a 20 millimeter wristband Uh, size, a heart rate monitor, zinc alloy, and or plastic, or it's made of zinc alloy and plastic. It will have a multiple-day battery. And I think that what they're waiting for at the moment is uh, for some developers to get in touch with them and say, yep, we're happy to work with you for this, and we can start building these things. So it depends on how quickly the software can be made available to work on the kit, but it looks like we might be getting this in quarter one or quarter two of... 2020 so whilst this is fantastic are they stretching themselves a little bit too far should they be concentrating no. on nope they're not okay no and here's why
1: so three things matter when you're trying to get a a product and or really a brand because they're not building a company they're not building a product they're not building a service they're not building an operating system they're building a brand mm-hmm. and i think there are three things that are important when you're building a brand and the the, the first one is is that you have one place to go. The reason that I buy so many Pelican cases is because I know that when I want to buy a case that's going to protect my equipment, Pelican is going to make a case for that. Are they expensive? Yes. Do they have a lifetime warranty? yes. Are they absolute stellar quality? A hundred percent. And so I know I buy a new laptop, I go buy the Pelican case board, I, whatever it is, camera equipment, analyzing equipment, Wi-Fi analyzing equipment, cable modem equipment, we put it in a Pelican case because I have that one company to go to. Now, if Pelican only made laptop cases, I, they, I would have to go you know, to one company or to the other. I don't even think about it. I just, I know from buying a case, I'm going to Pelican. And I think what pi- the company, what they're trying to do is they are trying to make technology for everybody, right? What mm-hmm. does everybody need in a a day-to-day laptop that you can open up and use, and how inexpensively can we make a quality product? And then they've gone back and said, okay, let's try and do that with the phone, and now they're going to say, let's try and do that with the watch. And if you think about the three things that people use in order are phone, watch, computer. I'd say the vast majority of people are most interested in purchasing themselves a phone. Then they're interested in purchasing themselves a smartwatch. And then a lot of people just use their work computer. And if they purchase a third electronic device, it's, it's, it's a computer. So I, think, I don't think they're stretching themselves too thin. In fact, I think what they're doing is, is staking their claim as the, the one technology company you can go to to buy your technology. And if you look at how well things like the Pebble did, I think there's Mm -hmm. absolutely a market in an open source smartwatch. We just need a company like Pine64 to make it.
0: Excellent. Especially at this price point. I mean, they, they just shock right. in awe constantly with the prices. Like when I saw the price, I'm like, that's gotta be a mistake. Yeah, that seems ridiculous. Right. It's two hundred well, and fifty dollars, right? Not twenty. And look
1: at the and look at it too. It's uh it it doesn't look like some hacked together piece of crap. It looks like a quality time piece. Well, this yeah. is Zeb
0: why they're not stretching themselves too thin because unlike some other people who are trying to get into this arena, they're using established hardware that's out there and then telling that that company saying, here's the specs, here's how we want it to look and make some changes to something that's tried and true versus sitting there trying to mill their own device from scratch, which then yes, if they were milling every single device they created from scratch, we would probably be stretching themselves too thin, but they're doing this the smart way. And they're obviously going to spend their time instead of trying to, you know, uh, re-engineer a watch from scratch they're going to spend their time working with the developers to get the software right and make sure developers have developer kits ahead of time so this thing works very well and I can tell you that these watches well to me it's frustrating to have another thing dinging at me all the time I have had some of the watches from both the Android and the Apple Watch and played with these for weeks and months at a time um, and there is some neat things that they offer out there that again I just get so many emails and messages a day that It wasn't for me, but I get why some people, like my wife, absolutely love theirs. And the life saving technology that these watches also have with this heart tech, this um, heart research that they've done, there are people who have been able to predict ahead of time that they're going to have a heart attack because their watch is going off and this has a heart rate monitor in it saying, hey, for some reason, your heart is accelerated at ridiculous levels and people go to the hospital and find out they were just about to have a heart attack or they were within days of having heart attacks. This stuff is absolutely life-saving and amazing, the technology behind it. And I love that Pine64 is getting involved in it. And I just love this company. If there was a company and I just love their face, it's Pine64.
1: (laughs) Here yeah. let me let me let me uh, let me put on a tinfoil hat for just a second. You talk about life saving technology and while I agree that's an important thing to consider also consider this. When it comes from a company like Apple or Google or any of these other companies that have a vested commercial interest rather than an interest in your privacy and your security what's to stop these companies later on down the road from partnering with I don't know medical insurance companies and saying hey these people who constantly have tachycardia we're going to we're going to to to, to release that information or the 23 and me with they there's the Know, third-party doctrine allows them to do anything they want with that information. What's to mm-hmm. stop them from doing it's that? It's so not the, only
0: a possibility, you know, it's going to be the case, right? This is the same thing sure. with people taking their uh, the cars ins- from their insurance companies and plugging a device into their car. And right. They get the writing right now that says, well, our company, when you plug that device in your car, yeah. is not going to use that information to ever ding you. But they and we'll know,
1: give you $15 off your car insurance every six months.
0: Yeah, but the insurance companies know that you everybody switches insurance companies a lot. Right. Like this is a big thing. You've got a 70% turnover probably in this market of people switching every five years. Right. So the first time they're not going to use it, but they can sell that to another competitor who may now decide that you hit the brakes all the time and you drive too fast, and now we're going to charge you more for insurance. So that's yeah, exactly. I, right. I think Apple certainly in this case is far more trustworthy because they don't make their primary money off of advertising yet. But that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they won't in the future to compete with Google and other things. Google, I definitely wouldn't be sticking uh, their watch on my wrist anytime soon. But I would stick a Pine64 uh, watch on my wrist any day of the week.
1: So where we get to is if you look at something like the Pine People, I I I feel like I can actually trust them when they're des- when they say they're making a device designed with my privacy in mind, and when they des- when they design a, a a watch that is designed for a company that has privacy and security and and values open source in the community. Um, so to me that that's a that's a whole not- that's a that's like fifty percent of the reason why I would be interested in a smart device from this company.
3: Yeah. I agree. I think the Pine cool. sixty four they're doing a lot of stuff, and also the hardware aspect of them being able to do this kind of thing is because they've been doing hardware way before they started doing any, even the Pine Book. Like the Pine Book has been around for a year, year and a half or so, maybe even two. And they're they're kind of like ramping up after they've gotten the experience with those products and making a new like a full type of product approach. But they've been doing system on a chip boards and stuff like that for many years. They've been one of the uh, go to competitors against the Raspberry Pi for many years as well. So like the Rock Chip sixty four has been mm-hmm. a, a very uh, very sought after board for a lot of people. So they've been in the space for making hardware. Even on a small like the small type of product hardware for a very long time, so I think that they're in a good position to be doing it. And also, we got information from uh, Lucas from Pine Sixty Four who said that if we wanted to talk about it, he wanted us to mention that the dev kits will be uh, will be going out for the watch, but somewhere between late October and November ish. They don't really know exactly when, but that's pretty soon for them to be already working on a dev kit. And they yeah. d- and so that so they the. the Estimate, rough estimate of a quarter one quarter two 2020 is likely possible depending on how quickly the software can be made for the, the watch so i'm super excited and I, I actually at one point i said um you know when pine makes these new products i'm basically going to get all these products and because of their prices they're they make it possible to buy every single new product they're coming out for these, new, th- these new lines and yeah. it's still reasonably priced for all of it and it's just that's just ridiculous. And I, when I was talking to Lucas about this this new latest thing, I sent a message to him. I was like, "Could you like calm down a little bit? Because you're blowing my mind too many times too often."
1: <laughs> Microsoft continues to push this narrative that they love Linux and they're going to market Linux, and that Linux has some integrations and is now a grassroots roots conference to push this agenda. So on March 10th and 11th, Microsoft will be holding the WSL conference in Redmond, Washington. The conference will be two whole days of hands-on workshops, hackathons, presentations, and networking. The conference will be free, but you will need to register to looking for speakers. So you can sign up at wslconf.dev. Microsoft is clearly trying to secure developers and the hearts of the community, as well as the small business world, community events like this, Can have a big impact on getting developers' attention and building a fan base around WSL, which continues to get better with every release supported by Canonical, Debian, Kali, SUSE, and OpenSUSE. Linux itself has a major marketing problem, as we've discussed before, and we hope DLN can help provide some exposure to Linux, not just as a great cloud and server OS, but also as a great desktop solution. Microsoft is taking some approaches here that show how serious they are about Linux and are looking to build. A fandom of its work with nobody challenging it. They've
0: got an easy road ahead of them. This is kind of like a a bittersweet, isn't it, to me, to read this news? Like, in some forms, I feel like um, this is a natural move for Microsoft, as I talked about running into that employee one time and them stating, yeah, we love Linux because it's great for our stock um that this is kind of a natural next form they know how to get into the community they are marketing linux better than many of the companies who've been in linux for decades and decades market linux they also know the power of a grassroots you know event here so i honestly you know this is the natural move in my opinion for microsoft to push sure. wsl and it's it's interesting that they are um continuing to push it and build upon this
3: it makes sense for microsoft to be doing this kind of thing and i think that they are doing the right thing in sense of what's good for their business and you know trying to push out the um, you know all the effort that they're trying to say that they're doing about the, the Microsoft loves Linux and all that stuff. And they are doing things that are that is good things that they're doing um, But you know WS, WSL is one of those things that technically speaking is good but as at the same time, why are we helping them? you know that kind of thing like if Microsoft is doing all the work to make Linux work on WSL, then okay, fair enough. But they're not. There's a lot of people helping them out making this work. So we're spending time as a community to help them remove reasons to use Linux or something. I don't know. I don't know what what that's all about. But the conference does make sense that they're doing it, and I think that there's also something we should talk about in the sense that uh, and that recently on Twitter, there was a uh, employee of Microsoft talking about how we uh, they wanted to know if, if we'd be interested in doing a OneNote, uh, if, if the Linux community, community would want a native client for OneNote. And uh, so I'll have a link to that in the uh, the poll if you'd like to vote on that in the show notes. But it's interesting because it shows that some cases – they are interested in doing it, and so like it's kind of like Microsoft is such a huge corporation that some pieces make sense and that they well, seem legit, and then other pieces are like. Well, this, this reminds
0: me of what Noah said one time, like, um, and, and I don't remember if it was related to Microsoft specifically or not, but you know there are a lot of people that listen to the show that are employed by Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just happen to be employees of Microsoft. And Noah, at one time you said, hey, the best way to change companies in their culture is to do it from within, right? Have yes. a bunch of employees that love Linux, love open source, and love privacy and security, and they get into major positions within these companies and can truly change things. I think the problem here is there is just a lot of bad blood that's been here for a while. And I also think, to your point, uh, Michael, that we seem to bend over backwards the second anybody gives us attention from one of these big companies that we've been fighting against for years and it's great that they want to get into open source and they want to learn and, and use some of the advantages of the community but should we bend over backwards to set up WSL and make sure it's patched and secure and do all the work for them on the back end I, I I have a hard time justifying it. Maybe somebody one day will send an email where it seems justified, but I, I don't get it. I think if Microsoft wants to do that, they should put some real work and in, effort into making that work and happen. And that would go a long way into proving their commitment to Linux and open source. If they were the yeah. ones building out the distributions for WSL and supporting them and applying the patches and everything right. else, you don't see that you see canonical and others going in there and kind of building the stuff for them. And that to me, is, I don't know. Maybe there's something behind the scenes I'm not aware of. But the one thing behind the scenes or the one thing that makes sense to me from a business perspective is most of the companies representing Linux today do not really focus or have much care anymore for the desktop. They're focused on where Linux is dominated, which is the cloud. And I think they make the wrong assumption that there's not a ton of money available to be made and growth potential focusing on the Linux desktop. And I think that's a mistake that they're making.
3: Yeah. And I think that they are putting some effort in that is like, you're right in the sense of like the history of Microsoft against uh, with Linux is decades of just atrocious, horrid actions. So now we have like four or five years of a new person in charge with Satya Nadella, who actually is making a transition in many, many ways for the better However, there's a there, it's they're, he's trying to pivot a company that is so huge that it's going to take a very long time, and there is signs that they're going to be doing something for that's good, but you need to do something that is good for the ecosystem, not just your bottom line, and most of the time when they release something new, every time I, they, oh actually every time they've released something I go, okay that's for business services, that's for the servers, that's for the enterprise thing, it's not for the community is for well i mean it's 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 different to say that it's for their bottom line and if microsoft came out and said microsoft hearts the money that we get from having services with linux that would be different than saying microsoft hearts linux
1: okay i agree with you to to a point michael but the the other the in fact it's really it's one of those things where like i have to bite my tongue anytime i read stories like this right i have to bite my tongue anytime we talk about it or i'm going to just Crap all over this entire story and this entire announcement because that's how I actually feel about it. Right. But, 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 but there is a line. And if Microsoft can't really make any money, it's not beneficial to their bottom line. Why should they concentrate on it? Like, at the end of the day, I, I get what you're saying, and I agree with you. if they want to really love Linux, they should actually focus on the community because that's what Linux is about. But as far as where they spend their money and what projects they invest in, it makes sense that they would do things that well, make the money.
3: There's a difference thing, but they they would still make money. and uh, this is not changing. they wouldn't change. like, for example, the where do they
1: make the, the most money though
3: right. Well, that's it. that's the thing. like if they first but they don't have to say come out and say, we heart Linux. that's what they're they decided— I agree. To, they decided I to agree. come out and put themselves in that position because if you, if you're going to make that claim, that you have to prove that claim because there's been up. decades of Linux is a cancer and you know right. Linux and open source is going to ruin the, the the world and all that other stuff that mm-hmm. they said in the past. If you're going to make a claim that you're changing, you have to right. prove that Back you're changing. Up. That's or all. I'm just
1: saying. say or just or just come out and say, hey, you know what? We don't really care for Linux. We would prefer that everybody use Windows. If everybody's going to use Linux, we're going to make a buck off of, find a way to make a buck off of it. So here's what we're going to do to make that happen, and we'll yeah. we'll support you to the to the extent that it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Sure. If they came out and said that, I would believe them at face value. I would take it and go, fine. Let's run with it. Fine. Microsoft Teams is running to Linux. That's awesome. I'm never going to use it, but I'm glad that it's there.
3: Yeah, that's that's basically yeah, the, the perspective I, I, I was saying.
0: Bigger problem is with all of this. You know, Microsoft's doing what any business would do, and we could make the argument that you know we've changed that target for what we expect of corporations, right? Everything is money, nothing's back to the community. So therefore, anybody does anything for money, it makes sense. We can argue that over the ages, we've we've moved that target to where companies, basically, the only thing we expect from them is to go out and make money and give nothing back. But the one thing that bothers me the most is that how the Linux community, the companies represent the Linux community, have reacted to the news, right? Uh, Microsoft's doing a better example advertising PowerShell than Linux has, which has had the power and more powerful uh, terminal application for decades. And Microsoft comes out and releases PowerShell and does a marketing commercial for it that blows away anything that any company that represents Linux has ever done. And it got so much attention, you know, and and this is the problem. And this is why DLN I think is so important, because being able to properly market the power of Linux on the desktop is something that's severely missed. And I think it's because a lot of the companies that represent Linux as a corporation don't care about the desktop very much anymore. They cared about it to yeah. get to grow, but they don't care about it anymore because the money's in the cloud and everything else. And I think there's I think that's a mistake from a business standpoint because I think there's tons of money to be made. I mean, there's $2 trillion corporations out there right now that made their money off of desktop computing. So there's a lot of money to be made here that is being ignored.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And I also would say that, you know, the the point about how the the network is actually going to help us, you know, bring more attention to the desktop, I, I totally agree with that. And actually, what's interesting is that the... Uh, the the employee from Microsoft who made this tweet about OneNote actually came to us and asked question, like asked us for our opinion about what was happening. So they came to me and wanted to talk about what I set up because I was so adamant against Microsoft, but not in the sense that Microsoft has no chance of ever changing my mind, just that they have a very big mountain to climb. And if they want us to handle the, the grappling hooks to climb, that's they actually have to prove that we... We were we're not just handing the art, you know, handing over the entire thing to them. So in the in the conversation, um, we, we were um, we were actually talking. To, uh, I was talking to him about it, and he was like, "What what is the things that we could do?" It's like, well, you have a big thing because of all the years and years of anti Linux that was coming from that company. So basically, they just need to make a gesture that would benefit Linux and not necessarily hurt Microsoft because that's not a requirement. I even said that they don't even have to open source certain things. They just have to make those work on the platform. One of the things I mentioned was Microsoft Office and uh, OneDrive or OneNote or whatever that's called. And the, and the employee was like, I appreciate your thing. We had a nice conversation. And then a couple hours later, the tweet happens that they're making a user voice voting system to talk about bringing OneDrive to the thing. So like just being upfront about like your opinion of it, it actually does seem to be beneficial. And I think getting the sense that they are bringing, they're willing to listen to us. And the fact that they, more employees are going to Microsoft that actually are, you know, wanting to change the the structure of that company is a very good thing. And I said, as as Ryan pointed out that that Noah's talked about like Red Hat being, uh, joining IBM to improve the structure of IBM, having people, Becoming part of Microsoft, to be to, who are who care about open source and want to improve the thing, is a good thing, and that's a good example of them wanting to do it. And I think if they were to bring OneDrive, that's a significant gesture to actually harding Linux.
2: Well, here's an interesting one for you guys. Um, if Microsoft do heart Linux, let's get Satya on here for an interview.
0: Let's Will do it. That'd be, that'd be interesting. We called him out. Gotta be here. <laughs> You've been warned. So if you're an old school arcade gamer, you probably remember a game, and I've mentioned other games being like it before because it always holds a special place in my heart called Smash TV. Do any of you know, Zeb, Michael, Noah, do you remember Smash TV in the arcades? All right. No, that's
3: just a shame. Not by name, but Smash
0: TV was a quarter stealing high intensity shooter with great taglines like, I'll buy that for a dollar. You'd hear screaming amongst the arcade machines. Yes, I got that one. Yeah Okay, you remember that. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, man, I miss arcades in the malls and things, you know, yeah. walking into a room and having all the dinging, binging and arcade shouting. But anyway, so there's a lot of nostalgia for Smash TV. And one of the games that I think plays on that, although they don't directly say it is a game called Calamity TV Show. So this is released by Immaterial Studios, which is such a cool name and available for Linux right off the bat. You get fast and intense action, challenge your skills with several levels of difficulty, crazy dialogue and characters, which is a must for the Smash TV type stuff. Killer soundtrack you can play. You cannot play this, they say, without headbanging. Two-player couch co-op, which is double the fun. 19 levels of varied gameplay. Five chapters with boss fights. Beautiful 3D graphics to display all of the enemy types and customize your gear with various weapons and hero modifiers out there. So if you are someone who loved Smash TV or that type of game, lots of action, check Freak Out, Calamity TV show out there. I think you'll like it.
2: Sounds good. So just before you move on, Michael, this is a special episode. We've made a fantastic announcement, and now we're going to have an announcement called Zeb's Revenge. So, oh, no. Ryan, your challenge for next week yeah, is the same enthusiasm that you just gave for Smash TV – I'm going to put a link. I want you to do a review of that game. Is
3: is it the one I sent you?
2: Michael knows (laughs) you have got to review that game next week on Destination Linux.
1: With Uh, the same enthusiasm and passion you have for that little red company that makes those
2: uh, knockoff video cards. Absolutely. I will call him out every week until he does it. What's the name of this game?
0: Hey, Noah, there is nobody I know, and I mean this true to heart that can basically put on in a second a you you've done this as a as a joke before when we, was it with Broush and other thing put on a character sell something that you don't believe in at all for <laughs> the fun of it so i need your help this week to help okay. you. <laughs> sure
2: <laughs> the, the game is called the greater multiverse <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I'm gonna need a Okay, all right.
1: All right, hey you you pick a day when you've got a night available and then okay. we'll get together on, on, on Mumble we'll work and we'll uh, we'll work something out. This is gonna be good. This all is gonna right. be really good. This, you don't know what you asked for, but you're about to get the best video game review you've ever seen in your life. Excellent. <laughs> We're have to, half half the Linux playing world is gonna play whatever this game is.
3: <laughs> so the software spotlight this week is eSpeak and GE speaker. And these are tools that, like the GE Speaker, is a GTK front end GUI for eSpeak. And if you're not familiar, eSpeak is a tool that converts text to speech. And allows you to change uh, from, you can have a male voice or a female voice, and also control the pitch and speed of that. So it'll help you if you have, uh, you know, if you're a blind user and you want to have it teaching you, like, you know, using the text to uh, tell you what you're actually reading and that kind of thing. So it makes, it's an accessibility tool. Uh, It's kind of like Orca, but it's not a screen reader. It's more of just for text-to-speech. And, uh, there's actually another tool I found, but it's not technically ready yet. So that's why I didn't put it in the show notes, but it's a cute base thing. So when that's ready, I will put it in the show notes, uh, but it's a fun tool to play with as well as using for auto auto translating text into other languages. If you can do that as well. So if you're interested in checking out eSpeak and GE Speaker, we'll have a link in the show notes
1: our tip and trick this week again kind of continuing on the line of data and data privacy data security how would you like to be able to access all of your stuff remotely from anywhere there's a number of different ways to do that i've done a couple of tutorials on wireguard which i think is going to be the future of vpn technology but wireguard as much as i love it as great as it is is still not to a place where you're going to go rolling it out in a bunch of different enterprises and the reason for that is because there are some limitations based on the fact that it has to run inside of the kernel uh one of the nice things about OpenVPN is that it has a long track history uh, of of being a very secure protocol as a way to VPN into other systems. The problem with OpenVPN traditionally has been it takes a long time to set up and you kind of have to know what you're doing. So I've come across, I didn't write it, but I've come across a script and it literally is a bash script that you run. It will ask you a couple of questions. What would you like to call your VPN? What is the IP address that you want, that that the your public IP address that you want to be able to connect into? What port would you like to use? And you enter all of these things and it will do everything you need Ow. to set up a VPN server and generate the client certificates with the password or without, depending Depending on if you push one or two on the interactive menu prompt and then send those out. So I, I, I tested it before we, uh, before we went on the air this week just to see how long it would take. It, for, for reference, it takes me about 30 minutes to set up OpenVPN start to finish. Create all the users, create all the certificates, uh, set up the server, do all the port forwarding, all that stuff. About 30 minutes. And I, and I do it a lot. Um, this script got the entire process, well, one user, but got the entire process down for me to be able to connect in about 45 seconds. So that gives you an idea of how efficient this is. So that we're going to have so cool. it is cool. So we're going to have a link to it. As long as you can forward uh, as long as you know how to run a bash script, dot slash, you have a CentOS server and you're willing to install the OpenVPN client on your laptop, you will be able to access your network securely, remotely and with the same standard used industry wide uh uh, across any enterprise network um, because OpenVPN has established itself as a very robust, secure uh, way to VPN in. So you can check those out. Make sure the only place you're going to be able to get this script is, unless you do all the digging like I did, the only place you're going to be able to get this script is in the Destination Linux show notes. So make sure to check those out. If you're not checking them out, then you're only getting part of the show because what we talk about doesn't uh, you know, encompass the full breadth of all of the stuff that is actually there and all the information that is available to you. So make sure to be checking out those show notes each week.
3: Absolutely.
0: So a big thank you to all of our patrons and each and every one of you watching and supporting and listening to us. It is beyond humbling the idea that we can do a live stream and have nearly at the peak 300 plus people watching us live to have the support that we do from our patrons, to have so many people help us to be able to accomplish the goals that we have here with Destination Linux Network. So thank you. We love all of our Patreon and Kofi supporters. We love everybody who comments on the shows, who takes the time to send us emails, that helps us do artwork for the shows, that help us build the servers and infrastructure behind this. Uh, You know, Michael and I worked many late nights, but Michael worked a ton of late nights along with the community to make sure all of this stuff was up and running Uh, and available for you to enjoy. And we want to definitely give a special thanks to Michael for putting all that work into there. And um, it's just also the community that stepped in to help him. When they saw him up there late at night, everybody jumped in helping build these servers and make this a reality. We couldn't do this without you, the community. We mean that. We would never have grown from the humble beginnings we talked about to get to this point without you. So thank you so much for your insane but loving support that you constantly give this show.
1: Those scenes don't build themselves. We need your help as the community. And you can do that (laughs) because we're on coffee as a way to support the show. That's right. You can support the show by giving us a nice uh, monthly donation that will allow you to have the same perks as those folks on Patreon, except you're way cooler because you're on coffee and you, unlike the Patreon people, can argue about the pronunciation. There'll be a link (laughs) in the show notes and on the website to join coffee. The perks includes things like access to live shows as well as an unedited version of the live show, which includes all of the scene creation that happens each week, those shows available as well as our sincere gratitude.
2: And let's not forget that there are other ways that you can contribute to the community and contribute to the show. So get back to us, write us a quick email, let us know things we're doing wrong, things we're doing right, subjects you want us to talk about. Send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. Join us on our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, mastodon and a million other ways that michael is going to make available for us you can find out that information at destinationlinuxorg forward slash contact so please keep the comments coming and don't forget if you can do us a little video it's even better because there'll be a little swag bag that's coming your way yeah
0: can and we per- talk about the fact we're nearly about to hit a thousand people in our telegram group i yeah, mean that we're, is we're awesome. getting there so yeah that's incredible
3: and if you want, if you want to send in the video, uh, try to keep it under a minute if possible. Uh, even shorter is better. If so, but a minute is great. If it just that's like the preferred de- deadline or timeline, whatever. Um, so anyway, if you also want, if you want to get more content from us, the fun doesn't stop here. We actually have our own channels. You can check out Ryan by going to youtubecom doskeek, where he will fill your brains on hardware, software, all things Linux, and of course the Infinity Gauntlet and <laughs> Uh, you can check out Zeb. Go to, go to YouTube.com slash Zebedee Boss. Zeb can be found playing games on his Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel. You might find an occasional Gentoo installation or how-to as well. And uh, you can check out my content at tuxdigital.com, where I have in-depth weekly Linux news podcast this week in Linux and other Linux-related content. You can check out Noah's show. Uh, where he does the Ask Noah show, which is the, a weekly talk radio show that happens uh, every, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, where you can join him and ask all our Linux and tech questions. And also now, you can go to destinationlinux.network to go to, to find all of these things in one central location, as well as the Linux for Everyone podcast that is being on that network as well. So check out the DestinationLinux.network to find out all, to get access to all of these things and much, much more.
0: Everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the Destination Linux Network.
3: <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And also be sure to go to the forums, DestinationLinux.network, and check click on the form link and uh, be sure to sign up.